Hello and welcome everyone to today's episode of Accelerating Texas K-12 Education. I'm your host as always, J.W. Marshall with Summit K-12, and we have got a great episode planned for you today. Our guest on this episode is Dr. Curtis Colwell. He is uh, currently serving as the Executive Director of the Texas School Alliance, and uh, he's a former superintendent for many years. Uh, Dr. Colwell, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, JW. It's a pleasure to be here. And as my audience knows, we, we love to start the show every episode out with uh, the same question, uh, which is who are you and what do you love about what you do? Uh, first of all, uh, JW, I was uh, been an educator for about 38 years in traditional public schools. Uh, 23 of those years, I was a school superintendent. Uh, my last superintendency was in uh, Garland ISD here in the Dallas area, uh, district of 55, 60,000 students. I did that for 13 and a half, almost 14 years. Prior to that, I was superintendent in Lubbock. Uh, prior to that, I was superintendent in Pittsburgh, Texas, in Northeast Texas. I school principal on the Gulf Coast and uh, started my career in the Dallas-Fort Worth area as a teacher uh, and then a, a principal and school administrator. But uh, uh, I have uh, worked in all parts of the state, uh, uh, every uh, West Texas, East Texas, Gulf Coast, North Texas. Uh, my father was a school administrator, by the way. And uh, uh, they were uh, from Region 1 folks. They were, my mom and dad were from the Valley. My dad from Gallon, mom from San Benito. I was born down uh, in South Texas and had a lot of family there. So uh, understanding uh, the, 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 the width and the breadth of the state and uh, uh, have enjoyed and been very passionate about what I've been able to do and be associated with, uh, not only as a superintendent, but as director of the Texas School Alliance and uh, the 2.2 million students that uh, comprise that in the 44 school districts. So uh, it's been an, uh, a wonderful uh, uh, opportunity to, to work uh, in, in, in policy and in educational policy, uh, innovation, and uh, uh, it's been certainly a interesting last 22 months. Absolutely. And and we have a lot of questions and topics we want to dive into, but for anyone listening that is not familiar with uh, the Texas School Alliance, to give our audience a little background on um, on that organization and the work that you do. Uh, they've been around since about 1992. And uh, uh, I first became associated with the Texas School Alliance when I was deputy superintendent of Lubbock. I was working for a guy named Mike Moses, uh, who uh, later became commissioner of education. And uh, uh, then took Mike's place when uh, uh, when Governor Bush appointed him as commissioner. Uh, and uh, the Texas School Alliance is uh, is based is a superintendent led organization that focuses and coalesces around uh, districts that uh, uh, have uh, large numbers of economically disadvantaged students, large numbers of English English language learners. Uh, that uh, are uh, urban and mid-urban uh, uh, school districts. Uh, and we've since expanded then to, to include a number of districts that from geographically different parts of the state. Uh, but we're vitally interested in uh, providing opportunities for all students and also looking at innovation and looking at public policy and how we can possibly influence or work with policy and decision makers on the state level uh, to provide the best educational opportunities for students from all backgrounds, regardless of 
where they are, but uh, mostly understanding uh, that not everybody starts at the same place, but we do want them to finish at the same place. And uh, this has been uh, the uh, the purpose of the Texas School Alliance. And again, it's uh, uh, it uh, we have you know Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, Fort Worth, uh, Garland, uh, Mesquite, uh, McAllen, Brown, uh, Harlingen, excuse me, uh, and uh, Amarillo, uh, some El Paso. So and also Tyler. So we you know out of the forty four districts. Uh, uh, we cover uh, the width and breadth of the state, and, and uh, uh, that's what we're about. And that, that we try to focus on, on on students that have those needs, and how everything from public policy to innovation uh, to uh, uh, new practices uh, and, and best practices can impact uh, student learning. I love that, and then I'll ask my next question as a follow up to the innovation, and also to the point you made about not every student starts in the same place. Uh, it feels like in education technology, we've been talking about personalized learning and um, individualized learning plans, differentiated learning by student for over 20 years. And it seems like it was something that has been long time coming, but really hadn't gotten there yet. Um, have, have we started to get there? Is it something that you're seeing as recent as this year, last year, by the the force into more online learning through the pandemic that you're you're finally starting to see some progress in that front and and what do you see as the future for uh real differentiated personalized learning well uh the 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 last 22 months uh have have taught us uh, a, a, a number of things uh we haven't completely digested everything that uh, we've uh, we've learned and Sometimes uh, the conclusions that uh, and the rush to judgment in certain things that uh, have occurred in the pandemic need to be looked at much closer uh, with, uh, with, with a more critical eye, uh, certainly an eye that's uh, based in, in research and uh, uh, real outcomes and data that can drive what we've learned and help us refocus and uh, have some clarity about the lessons because there is an abundance of lessons, JW, as you know, that uh, that we've learned. Things that we've had to relearn, things that we have to that we've had to pivot to and learn as we went. And um, so, how do we apply those lessons uh, to a, a, a situation that's normalizing? And what lessons can we take from uh, the uh, what? many people believe is going to be a pattern probably of disruption for several more years as, uh, as, uh, as the virus continues to evolve. Uh, we've seen that to what, what's happened this fall with Omicron and when we look down the pipeline and everybody wants to get back to some sense of normalcy and uh, understand that, but uh, uh, there's probably going to be some continued uh, disruption. And we all know that, uh, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. And uh, uh, how we had to pivot 22 months ago, uh, last April, or 22, two years ago from April, uh, in, in the pandemic, and, and, and just flip the switch to, to virtual education, some of which was good, some of which was not good. Uh, so uh, what did we learn? And, and, I, and that's something that I'm, I'm vitally interested in at that point. And uh, what do we need to do? Uh, uh, 
we know that there's a tremendous going to be and is an existing need and will continue to be a need for accelerated learning to be able to move students that have had and I love this uh, illustration that uh, several superintendents have used from different parts of the state and nation is that education has been a Swiss, it looks like Swiss cheese the past 22 months. There, there are gaps in all of it, okay, uh, because of, uh, you know, of closings, of openings, of uh, virtual, uh, because of uh, uh, just human capital issues about having enough teachers, enough substitutes, uh, and, and uh and then the application of uh, technology and how that's trying to fill the gap. So uh, that's something that's um, is we continue to digest and uh, uh, we continue to learn from. But I do think that uh, particularly in the area of accelerated learning, and uh, we were talking about House Bill forty five forty five in Texas, and uh, the accelerated learning component of it. Uh, we were very involved in the school alliance with that original piece of legislation. Uh, the, the, they're actually, they're taking comments now to Texas Education Agency. This is the public comment period on that bill uh, about some of the implementation procedures. And uh, there, there's some things that I think that uh, probably uh, can be improved uh, there. And, uh, and I think technology is a huge part of that. Yeah, and I'll never forget, I think it was the summer of 2020, pretty fresh into the pandemic, but at the time we didn't know how long this would last. Uh, I think it was the New York Times that declared online learning has, has failed, it's not going to work. Yeah. Uh, and it seemed very premature at the time, and, and now looking back on it, uh, it seems very unfair um, just by the level of preparedness that uh, the country had to you know, deal with something like this. Um, fast forward now to, to 2022. Um, talk a little bit about the progress that we have made, because it's so often uh, easy to focus on the, the problems we haven't solved yet and the, the data we're waiting on to make decisions. Uh, closing the digital divide to, to a large degree uh, than we've done in the past. Um, bureaucracy cutting red tape to get students what they needed. Uh, the heroic stories of uh, principals and superintendents driving around hotspots. Tell us, give us some good news, oh. some half glass full uh, news over the last 22 months and, and where we are today. Yeah, and that's uh, it, and it again uh, the, the, the exposure of uh, the gaps in our ability to provide a virtual and remote learning were startling to a lot of people, particularly out of even in even in urban areas where you know there was the belief that well you know everybody's covered, everybody's got Wi-Fi, everybody's got some capability. Wrong, particularly. Uh, particularly, again, uh, economic, economically disadvantaged areas, uh, you know, certain uh, places where the, you know, you know, if you're going to get it, it's going to be a, uh, it's going to be a significant cost. The other part of that is the rural areas, uh, just uh, the conversations uh, that have taken place over the years about being able to provide. Uh, remember. Uh, of the money that was available for bringing internet to the to the rural areas and didn't be able to provide Wi-Fi, uh, that there was a huge gap, uh, and uh, the need for that uh, dissipated a little bit uh, in the eyes of policymakers and funders. Uh, so that was a huge uh, that was a huge exposure, and it was a it was a significant awakening, uh, uh, JW, about uh, where we need to go. 
not only for uh, responses to uh, uh, pandemics or uh, disruptions, but just the blanketing and the providing of uh, the issue of equity and equitable access to knowledge, uh, to accelerated learning. Uh, and so there's some positive things. Uh, you know, one of our, again, one of the members in our uh, organization in Ector County, you know, heavily involved in what, what's going on with SpaceX, uh, with uh, blanketing, uh, you know, the rural areas with uh, satellite Wi-Fi, uh, because they had, uh, and, and having worked and lived in West Texas, you know, the vast geographic expanses and uh, uh, the, some of the challenges of providing uh, real-time uh uh, Wi-Fi uh, access. And then again, it's not just rural areas. We talked about, you know, people driving their buses and putting hotspots in areas uh, when, when we first moved to this, because that was, a, and, and that's one of the lessons you talk about glass half full that I think hopefully that can, can be applied. Uh, and I think it is being applied is that resources have to uh, have to be allocated to be able to, to close that divide. It's a fundamental right now. It's a fundamental access that uh, for educational purposes, it's an, equ it's an equity uh, issue uh, that everyone can be able to have, not again, not just for periods of disruption, but for everyday learning, everyday access to knowledge, to self-improvement, uh, and again, to the educational process. Those are, those are some of the things that uh, uh, I, I think at the beginning that we learned. And then, of course, the second stage of that is uh, is quality, uh, you know, quality access. Who does it well? Who doesn't do it well? Uh, how, do, how, how do we learn, uh, uh, you know, the, the quality providers, uh, districts that want to develop their own? Uh, virtual learning really worked for some kids. You know, the, the, the blanket JW statement of it's abject failure is not so. Now, nope. part of that had to do with, you know, implementation uh, nationwide. But the other part is that some kids, students and families do really well with virtual education. And that's the, the, that's the conversation that, you know, has got to continue to take place is how do districts do that that are good at it, that have families and children that uh, take to it and, and thrive in the virtual environment, then how do we fund them? Because funding did not follow virtual. And that's, that's something we can talk about if you want to here in a minute. Yeah. And I'd love to keep going down that road because we did hear, uh, you know, the masses uh, want to get back to normal, get back to physical learning, but there is a, a large percentage. I would, uh, some research studies show 10 to 20% of students that really thrived in the virtual learning environment, whether they were just too shy to speak up in class or, uh, you know, had uh, learning challenges that lend themselves better to, to being a virtual learner. Um, you know, that's something that a lot of districts uh, have really taken a hard look at. Do we need some some 100% virtual offerings? And I think maybe the bigger question is, what advice would you have to those superintendents, those district leaders listening to this, that uh, there is no one-size-fits-all solution to the integration of technology? How does each district find their own their own mix, right? Whether that's having the virtual offering, having the, the hybrid offering, 
just at least at a minimum being prepared for, for future disruptions from on site to virtual. Um, it seems like it's it's really tricky waters to navigate uh, for districts right now. What advice would you have for them? Well, first of all, uh, uh, the hybrid approach was pretty labor intensive in the beginning. And uh, it uh, gave uh, some of your instructional staff a bad taste of what uh, virtual learning could be. Uh, I, I think uh, uh, because you know we have a, somewhat of a uh, impediment is our funding system. Uh, you know, based on average daily attendance. You know, so many hours in the classroom, so many hours in the seat, and. And all of that became somewhat uh, uh, convoluted because uh, we were heavily involved with that and working with the agency, uh, Texas Education Agency and other districts. And how do we fund, uh, how do we do this? Uh, I, I was, uh, you know, again, uh, yes, we understood what it meant to try to get back things to normal with in-person learning. Uh, that is not necessarily, J.W., all education. A lot of that is social. And, uh, 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 you know, I spent a lot of time in, 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 in my life and in research on American schooling, particularly American secondary schooling, how it evolved because it extended adolescence because of the Industrial Revolution, which continues in the technology revolution, you know, and how long should schooling be? Uh, in the old notion, and you've probably heard the phrase, you know, a cage for every age, you know, you're six years old, you're in the first grade, you know, you're, you're, you're 10 years old, you're in the fourth grade and on through schooling. And uh, that's where virtual and uh, uh, either full-time virtual, supplemental virtual, uh, accelerated learning virtual, uh, it reshapes time and placement where learning occurs. And our workforce and part of this social mission of public schools also is to have a place for children to go. Okay, there's the social interaction, there's the learning interaction, and then there's just the mere fact it is, and that was what extended adolescence, the rise of the American high school in our country was, what are we gonna do all of a sudden with all these 15, 16 and 17 year old kids that aren't apprentices, are involved in child labor that are just roaming the streets. So that 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 that's part of all of this conglomeration that comes together, and that's what part of the rethinking process and the innovation of technology and uh, uh, virtual learning is. All of this is going to settle somewhere when we get through with the. Um, the, the simplistic and the hyperbole about what works and what doesn't work and uh, what families want and what research says learning does for students in these types of uh, new environments. And you brought up uh, the social aspects, um, and I'll expand a little bit into the, the social-emotional learning um, that so many students, it, it actually was better for them to be in, in the school and been, been at the home. There's that student population. Um, but it's hard to talk about accelerating student learning without first covering that basic needs and the social emotional learning piece. Um, talk about, you know, what you're seeing in that space and how maybe that's being looked at differently now here as the, the pandemic has really shown a light on mental health and social emotional 
um, you know, the importance of that social emotional learning uh, that students maybe did lose a little bit of being virtual over the last two years? Well, there's no question that uh, that uh, that the impact and, and, and I'll tell you, you know, what 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 educators and parents and families and as a grandfather of uh, six you know, school age children uh, make that five one that's going to be. But uh, uh, we, we probably underestimated uh, the uh, impact that uh, this. 21 months of disruption and, uh, has had socially and emotionally on moving back into this. I mean, kids got used to and uh, uh, working in, in, a, in, a, in an enclosed, smarter, or less interactive environment. And then moving back into this, you know, it was, and for some districts with it, it had. Uh, really limited uh, in-person learning. It was, it has had an impact. It, it really has. And uh, the other thing, the flip side of this is that there, there's some, some, some students that uh, the social and emotional part uh, is difficult for them, uh, has been, before the pandemic, it was difficult for them in a virtual environment. And that's an been an impediment to their learning. So, uh, you know, moving moving youngsters back in uh, to uh, uh, again to the to the to the full in person environment, uh, the discipline, the structure, and just JW for a second. If we think this is just a K twelve or an educational issue, this is a workforce. I mean, people are seeing it in the work environment. Uh, 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 you know, to getting people back. You know, used to being in the office, working face to face with groups. Uh, getting dressed <laughs> and, uh, you know, going to work. And uh, uh, so it's been an adjustment. It's been an adjustment for everyone. Yeah, and it's been something that, um, you know, parents have gotten used to certain norms or had to make accommodations, and they're adjusting as well. And that has an effect on the students to see the parents going through some, some of those similar struggles, and, uh, and, and that's tough. Um, I want to shift a, a little bit back to, uh, what you had mentioned earlier about how things weren't that great for a lot of student populations before the pandemic with learning loss. Uh, this is not a new concept. This has been happening for forever. Um, and so how do we, again, advise, you know, district leaders, school leaders on how do we keep positive momentum moving forward that we're not just trying to get back to where we were in 2019, that we're trying to find that new normal or next normal, as some are calling it, um, that really takes those key learnings, those silver linings of the pandemic, and and not just keeps them, but m keeps moving them forward. Because we, we're we not doing a great job of serving a lot of student populations that uh, your organization works with specifically uh, before. And, and there seems to be a big opportunity right now to, to systemically make some changes that are going to bring not just equality and more devices, but as you mentioned, real equity in what those students need based on, you know, their specific place that they are right now. Give us some hope for the future and, and some encouragement on how to keep building, you know, with, with the urgency that we've had to have over the last 22 months. Well, that, that, I, think you, I think you said it very well. Uh, uh, just then, uh, you know, it is an opportunity to uh, move a very large and cumbersome industry sometimes that 
that K-12 is forward. Uh, and there is, uh, there's a lot of things we learned. And like I said, a lot of good lessons, some bad lessons, and some, some lessons we don't even understand yet. But it is an opportunity, and I think it's going to be an, a, an extraordinary opportunity to be able to include innovation, to be able to include technology, to be able to blend those things with high quality instructional uh, uh, approaches uh, for all students. One thing that uh, when you have uh, disruption is that we had, sometimes it peels away uh, and you get to see uh, what really is uh, uh, in, in, in existence in terms of inequitable uh, accesses to knowledge and and uh, the the for for people that don't work in this industry that don't understand that you know sixty percent of the kids in Texas are educationally disadvantaged by the free and reduced criteria and that's a whole different conversation but uh, all that means is that uh, that 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 these families and those those, those students. Uh, are fully capable just to anybody that's in the other 40%. And then whether they've got language uh, or in the process of language acquisition, uh, English language acquisition, or students that uh, are, are, are new to this country that uh, have uh, the significant literacy deficiencies in their home language, which uh, is, uh, is huge, particularly uh, for uh, uh, students uh, 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 sometimes from uh, uh, Southern Hemisphere and uh, uh, particularly not from Mexico. Uh, but uh, all those things that when, you know, we've learned uh, that uh, uh, there, there's some ways to accelerate and ways to uh, be able, because a lot of this is literacy issues. You know, there's a lot of conversations about the, uh, the, the very strong correlation uh, between uh, student performance and school ratings and family income, and it's it 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 is a strong correlation. Uh, but also part of that correlation has to do with equitable access uh, to uh, literacy, uh, to uh, fundamental uh, uh, mathematical uh, sequential learning, uh, as well as uh, decoding and. Uh, uh, the reading process. Reading is a complicated, you know, there's the, the, the literature, the, you know, the, the, the approaches to reading and, and decoding and, and language in itself is, uh, uh, you know, reading is not a natural function. We learn how to talk, but we don't necessarily learn how to read. And language is complicated and, and uh, all of that. But there's, you know, it, there's a tremendous amount of science there that technology can help and help parents learn. The other thing about mathematics is uh, uh, there's the old saying when people ask me when I work in school finance and I'm in a meeting and they ask me a question about school formulas, my answer is I don't do math in public. You know, I, <laughs> you know, let, let me let me work on the spreadsheet. Let me get to the formula. But standing, you know, math is thought is intimidating a lot of people as well. And there are a lot of good, uh, uh, you know, uh, products and there's a lot of good innovation out there. In, and a lot of people worried about when you say product. Well, you know, the public school is the source of everything. Well, uh, they're 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 the source of a lot of good things, but there are other sources that supplement, augment, can also accelerate learning. Again, give some parents a little more control of the learning situation, and also, but you can't do it 
can't do it unless you have access to it. And that's, that's a catchphrase I use and tell people, you can't do it unless you have access to it. And uh, uh, going back to the lessons of four kids in one family, you have one laptop, one lousy internet connection. How good do you think the virtual learning environment was for that family? But that can be remedied. And that's what I think that's what people in the industry, not just the uh, the, 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 the K-12 industry in, of, uh, of schools, teachers and administration, but entrepreneurs and innovators outside of that. Uh, I think it's a, it, I think it's a rich area that uh, we're going to see some advances in. And, and I would say being in the ed tech industry, it's been amazing over the last 22 months to really see the industry come together, to really become partners with the districts, to give free product, to help lobby for more equity and access. Um, it has been really uh, exciting to, to be a part of uh, an industry that is not just a for-profit, but is really, uh, by and large, cares about the students and the teachers and, and the impact that they can have. Um, but at the same time, I've noticed, and maybe you have as well, and, and everyone listening, the, uh, the quality issue. Uh, it, when the pandemic first hit, there was a lot of leniency and we're doing the best we can on all fronts. And by the fall, a lot of people expected the technology to, to be perfect, to, to have the access. And, and it seems like every semester, the, the bar gets raised higher and higher. Um, and with a lot of product out there and tech companies, um, it's a very saturated market. What advice would you have, and I know you're also a consultant, um, to districts that are overwhelmed by the, by the options um, and, and how to really evaluate what product would be the 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 best and and personally i think there's going to be a little bit of a great audit for a lot of districts that have gotten a lot of product over the last couple of years and they can't use them all they haven't been trained on all of them and i think maybe a a less is more approach may may find itself through the next year or two but but give us your take on you know what should district how can districts not be overwhelmed and make the best decisions especially with the ESSER funds and and the funds they have now um to really provide the best uh best product for their students and their teachers and, and that's, that, that's a great question. And, and uh, uh, first, let me start with ESSER funds, the amount of money that was uh, you know, made available and uh, the conversation on how you spend that. And uh, now there's going to be a great audit at some point and a reckoning into how districts and higher ed and, and everyone in general that we said federal, uh, federal aid uh, during the pandemic, what they did with it. But uh, one of the things that schools uh, uh, have had to deal with is... Uh, 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 from a technology and product standpoint is what in its age old, you've been in this industry and long as I've been in it, is uh, architecture, uh, device, uh, delivery. What, you know, do we, do, we, do we go buy new laptops for everybody? Well, we've already had a one-to-one approach and we've already spent a lot of money on providing, you know, a device uh, uh, to, to students on a one-to-one basis. So how did that work? Well, we found out, you know, it, it didn't work very well because uh, once they left the school environment, uh, they didn't have internet access that was reliable. Uh, the second thing is, what do we put on it? And uh, uh, it's meaningful. It's also tied into uh, the district curriculum, the school curriculum, the state essential uh, uh, knowledge and skills, things that relate to state assessment, uh, things that relate to uh, 
uh, not only uh, accountability and assessment issues because we're we're heavily uh, regulated in the area uh, because of state mandated testing, uh, but uh, all those things and also are we creating something that supplements the teacher, helps the teacher? And the first thing that gets asked for providers are people in the industry, technology industry, they're working with schools. Is this going to be more work for us? You know, we're, we're not looking for something. We're trying to find something that uh, because of uh, the, uh, the efforts of uh, the things we have to do in accelerated learning, the requirements, the, uh, the hour requirements uh, uh, to accelerate uh, students to catch them up to, via, via House School 45, 45, and other things. Is this, you know, is this effective? Is it efficient? And uh, is it equitable? The three E's that are really important in this. And uh, uh, the effectiveness and the, uh, the efficiency, that's one of the first things I hear. And as a consultant, and I, and I, and I do some consulting with people in this space, uh, they're doing some exciting things. And, uh, uh, but that's the first question that gets asked is, you know, is this gonna create, is, is this gonna help? Or is this gonna, just another layer that our teachers are gonna have to deal with because they are stressed. We have a uh, uh, we have a human capital issue in education right now in terms of uh, you know uh, teachers and what again everything that we're trying to do in accelerated learning everything we're trying to do to catch kids up you know is this more work so where are we going to find these people to do it uh, what you know what interactive system do you have and uh, uh, is it actually a good learning tool is it effective is it efficient is it equitable. I mentioned time and space a while ago because in, in, in an eight cage for every age, how do we do accelerate instruction? Is it from eight to four? Is it from the middle of August to the first of June? You know, we're going to have to look at that whole continuum uh, of, of how we provide these services. And that's where this space, the educational uh, technology space, allows you flexibility in time and in place, when you do it and where you do it. And in between there is how you do it, and how good it is. So that is really, uh, and, and, there, and that's some of the exciting things that are going on. And I'll add a couple to your ease, uh, the effective, efficient, equitable, and these kind of roll up and play with them, but the easy to use is, is so important for teachers. If you need a full day or multiple days of training on something, it's probably not going to get implemented because it needs to be intuitive and, and easy to use. And then also it needs to be engaging. It has to engage the students and to some degree also engage the educators that they're, this is something that they're excited about using. Um, I like to tell people that uh, if your online tools aren't having a noticeable impact that you're talking about, you probably need to look for some different tools because there's so many out there that are having these, these big impacts and gains that uh, don't stick with something that's just average. There's, there's great things out there to look for. Um, one last question I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts on. You mentioned the, the, the great resignation, which isn't just happening in education. It's happening you know, across the world. Um, there used to be a misconception that uh, technology was coming to take the, the teachers' jobs, that they weren't going to be needed anymore. Um, my, my take is hopefully through these last two years of everyone having to use technology, that they've realized that that is 
far from the truth that technology is an enhancement for the student learning experience and an enhancement for the teaching experience. They don't need to spend 20 hours grading papers when they can be more effective and efficient with, with the right use and the right mix of technology. Um, do you think there is still uh, that misconception out there? Or do you think we can finally move forward in, uh, in the current educators feeling like technology was this scary thing and now it, it's gonna become something a must have that they have to lean on, especially during these teacher shortages? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that, uh, uh, again, teacher shortages uh, is an issue, uh, but uh, uh, it, 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 it's not to be feared. And I, I think people, uh, and I think most educators are, have, 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 are learning, continue to learn to grasp how to use it. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, and I think the smart application of technology will wash some of the bad taste that people developed uh, during the last 22 minutes and be able to, uh, 22 months and be able to use it uh, 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 much more effectively. And uh, in, in an embracing of, uh, I'll give you some, you know, just not talking about direct instruction, but uh, uh, many of the uh, the, the uh, operating systems out there that districts use for their curriculum, uh, that uh, you know they download the lessons, that everything's accessible. Their videos, uh, there's uh, uh, all kinds of supplemental materials that they can uh, use in the classroom. Uh, uh, some of the the people I work with. Uh, uh, are really looking at you know trying to take uh, artificial intelligence components uh, of of school district uh, uh, platforms uh, you know and, and, and I could go name them uh, you know uh, in, in you probably you know there there's the traditional ones there's young upstart ones uh, uh, you know there's the the classic uh, there's there's schoolology there's I've worked with a new company, Nomadics, that does some really exciting things with artificial intelligence. But being able to, you know, teachers to feel comfortable with one, their school curriculum that is delivered in a technology device. The staff development is delivered that way. And once they become comfortable with it and they understand that it can really help and that it's as it gets smarter, JW, that's really one of the big the interactive part, how smart is it? And uh, as that moves forward, teachers will also become more comfortable with what's provided uh, as, uh, as uh, acceleration uh, uh, instruments for direct instruction. And particularly if it's smart, and again goes into what a teacher doesn't want to do is what you just exactly said, well, go. I got to spend two days on learning how to lose, use this if it works. Now, I, I and I also want to say, you know, we're moving into state assessment that's all going to be online, the STAR test. 100% it's going to be online in the, the next few years. And that has been a start and stop process, okay? There's been, uh, there's been uh, successes, there's been failures, have been, you know, been, uh, but it's progressing. And uh, uh, we're going to be there and, uh, uh, if, if we took the, you know, one failure does, it, it does not doom an approach. And, and, and naysayers want to, you know, they always want to point to the, you know, the, the critical problems. But uh, I, I think that, you know, teachers learning that on, online assessment, real time, 
in a huge state like ours is going to also move the mindset of what districts can do about uh, assessment and acceleration in real time through technology as a huge tool. Uh, so we're all moved. There's a lot of different pieces here, but that's where we're moving. And man, we're not going to go backwards. We're not going to move towards the state administering the test online and then not do it online, right? We're going to keep moving forward. Um, and and my hope, the best case example, would be that that the students would have a, a technology service that teacher aid for every student individually. That you just can't hire enough teachers aides and facilitators of learning to help. Uh, but but they would have that digital through the AI and through personalized learning paths. And, and then the educator, the teacher is looking at reports at a glance and going, this is where I need to spend more time with this student or this group of students really targeting instruction in person. And, and I think the other thing is, uh, you know, that the role of the teacher is, is there to help the students learn how to learn, give them the tools, but also inspire them to want to learn and want to continue learning. Being a lifelong learner is no longer a yeah. Uh, for some, it's for all. And, and yeah. I think that's the thing that the, the best AI and, and technology can't replace that relationship that a teacher has with a student um, to really encourage them and, and inspire learning. Yeah. One, 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 one quick illustration here is uh, 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 libraries. Uh, I, I, I've got my wife was a high school librarian in their national baccalaureate school for, for many years. And, I have a daughter that's a high school librarian. You know, libraries are going to go away. Everything's going to be ebooks. You know, you're not going to need, you know, but libraries have evolved into something very different. You know, they, they still have kids love books. They like to hold them, they like to check them out, take them home and read yep. them. But they also love ebooks. They also love uh, uh, audio books. Uh, libraries have become an instructional. Uh, a technology hub. Many, you know, many librarians are technologists, technologists for librarians. And, uh, it, you know, it didn't replace, you know, it didn't replace them. Some people have tried to do that. I don't think it's been, uh, uh, you know, some have been successful, others. But it's, it's again, it goes back to what we were talking about a while ago. It, it's not the fear of replacement, of obsolescence. It is the evolvement, the evolving of uh, blended technologies. Uh, the printing press was one of the greatest technologies ever invented. And, uh, but it continues to evolve and uh, uh, learning continues to evolve. And the human as well as the, tech, uh, the technological uh, delivery systems will continue to merge. And uh, uh, people shouldn't fear them, you know, they're gonna embrace them and it's gonna open up where uh, parents and families are going to be able to, you know, have schooling uh, at different places and, uh, you know, not, again, what space and what time. They don't necessarily have to be in the school. They don't have to be necessarily in uh, uh, Frisco or, or Garland. They can be somewhere else. And the person that's delivering those can be somewhere else too. So we're going to see that. And, and those are some. You know, that's exciting to me. And, uh, but again, equitable because kids and a lot of the families in the, the districts that we serve, their families aren't taking vacations. They're not working remotely. They're not saying, you know, we're down at Destin and my child's in school virtually. 
they're they're working every day in a job, in a profession, in an industry, in a service industry, and their children need to have learning and they need to have a place to go have learning where their access to shelter, warmth, food, and social and emotional caring. So all those things will blend together in time. That's that's what's exciting. Yeah. I think it's exciting as well. I got to interview Sal Khan from Econ Academy a while back, and he had a very similar taking the time and the place, uh, you know, limitations out of education and making it equitable and accessible to all students all the time, um, especially those uh, disadvantaged students that if they could only learn at a certain place in a certain time, that's going to limit them even further. So uh, yeah. I, I agree wholeheartedly. It's exciting. One last topic to touch on real quick is the Virtual Education Commission. Um, give us a, just a little background on on what that is. A lot of my audience audience may not know it's what it is and, and when it's coming and what their goal is. Yeah. Uh, in the last legislative session, when uh, all, all, all these issues that uh, were circling around uh, peripherally uh, with what was going on in schooling, uh, you know, some things came out at the last legislative session that, would, that we were very involved with wanting to get virtual education funded fully uh, uh, and be able to cut the, uh, uh, where, you know, uh, where, where the restrictions, uh, what, you know, it didn't have to be a hybrid approach uh, that could be done uh, 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 in a manner, uh, maybe just we started off with just kids within your defined boundaries, because you have, you have the, you know, the virtual network that already uh, exists out there, uh, which performs at, you know, some quality levels and like everything, it has some, uh, has some challenges. Uh, but, you know, some districts, particularly rural districts were saying, I, you know, we don't want, I'll just use this because he won't mind and he's going to be on your show. They're going to go, we don't want Hinojosa at Dallas ISD starting this virtual high school uh, in, a, uh, in, in a partnership with whomever and stealing our kids. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the virtual commission was a response to uh, in, inaction by the legislature in terms of funding uh, a virtual education, make it uh, a, a much more open playing field, more decentralized. So the, the, the commission itself and as legislators and private uh, 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 citizens own it, uh, people that are involved uh, and understand technology and they start, uh, at, at the, the date escapes me, uh, here this month toward the end of the month, and they will have a series of meetings and talk about, uh, you know, some of these issues related to virtual learning. And, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're hopeful that uh, uh, there's going to be some, you know, some some good positive dialogue out of it. And that's uh, something uh, uh, we're, we're past the knee-jerk reaction to virtual learning uh, because the biggest uh, obstacle to virtual learning uh, in the past 12 months has been, uh, you know, we got to get kids back to school. Uh, that's got to get everybody back. It, this virtual stuff doesn't work. It's, it's, you know, we can't get, we can't get to, we can't get the country back to work because parents have to stay home with kids. We got to get everybody back to school. There's truth to that. I mean, uh, again, that's what some of American schooling have all started as, but, uh, 
hopefully we'll progress further. And, and there's some there, there's some really sharp people in that commission. Uh, and, and, and Ken King uh, from up in the Panhandle, up in Canadian, uh, is uh, one of the leaders in that area. Uh, we had Keith Bell, representative for Forney, that was very involved in it. Uh, we, we had some very good thinkers on the uh, on the legislative side, and they will continue, hopefully, to to do that during the commission. But it's something just go on to TEA or just you know just do a browser search, and you'll probably provide that um, Texas Virtual Commission that will have all of their hearings, how to access the hearings uh, virtually, and uh, as well as uh, information they're supporting. And we'll have to reach out to even more of those members and have them on the show to give us updates throughout the year, as I'm sure things will right. evolve. And um, it is exciting that we're at this point, hopefully, where we're starting to make that transition from the, the reactiveness um, to getting through the transition to virtual through the pandemic, to which was the hardest work educators and administrators have ever had to do. Uh, but now kind of the new hard work of building back, you know, a better system that is going to continue to to grow and evolve and, and address these issues that have uh, sh the pandemic shone a light on. And uh, yeah. and it's there's more hard work ahead. But as you said earlier, it's an exciting time in education. I think this is the the dawn of the age of uh, the golden age of education, and uh, it's just scratching the surface in the beginning of of the progress that we're going to keep making in the years to come. Yeah, you know, and uh, you know, the effectiveness of them. And uh, I'm not going to sit here and plug your product, but, uh, you know, some of the work that you do, particularly in Region 1, some of the areas, you know, outstanding test scores there. And uh, uh, there, uh, uh, there, there's, some, there's some real examples, data, data-based uh, conclusions that can be drawn about some of the effectiveness of this. Absolutely. All right. That is all the time that we have for today, but there are more topics I want to dive into you later this year on a future episode. Uh, I hope you'll, you'll come back and join us again. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Curtis Caldwell, for joining this episode. Thank you, JW. Enjoyed it. And to my audience, uh, thank you for uh, joining us again this week. Uh, we love uh, your feedback. Continue to uh, post uh, uh, questions and thoughts on social media and uh, giving those to us directly. And be sure to check out past episodes on our website and anywhere you consume uh, your podcast. Thank you again for joining us and always, always keep learning.